I'm Cullen Burke, and this is Cauldron, a history of the world battle by battle. And thanks for listening to Cauldron. I'm your host, Cullen, and today we are covering another massive story. So, strap in for the long haul, but first, some quick housekeeping. Go to Instagram and Facebook for maps and images and to follow along with the story. Also, we have quizzes and conversations that can be built up there, so definitely check that out if you're into that kind of stuff. Head to iTunes, please, and when you get a chance, rate, review, and subscribe to the show. This really does help more people uh, hear the show, and the more people that we can get involved, the better the whole operation is. As always, I want to just quickly thank you to uh, send a thank you out to Melhax, our wonderful artist who does all of the episode artwork. She's on Fiverr, so just uh, search Melhax at Fiverr.com. And two quick uh, notes that that I just wanted to put out there for this episode. First off, I am going to do my best with the Japanese names that are here. I've had a few episodes where I've butchered some names, and I'm, you know, I I apologize. I'm doing whatever I can to try and make them, uh, get them right, but sometimes I just, I I butcher them, and for that I apologize uh, ahead of time. Lastly, there are a few quotes from historical figures in this episode that have a, a pretty charged, uh, derogatory, racist term, and I wrestled with whether or not to include these quotes, but ultimately I think it's, it's really necessary to give an idea of the, the people and the emotions of the time that the quotes were said. Obviously, I don't condone that kind of language, uh, in 2020, or in 2019, whatever year we're in, but uh, but at the time, these words were said, and I think it'd be silly not to include them, um, because then we wouldn't be telling the whole story. So, and then, oh, final note, I also have a cold, and so if I sound really nasally or whatever, uh, I apologize, but uh, we we move on, and uh, we've, we've got to get the story out there, so um, I'm going to record anyways. All right, that all was uh, just a heads up. I just didn't want anybody to be surprised by any of this. So, all right, let's get stuck in. Let's go back 77 years ago to the steamy, rank jungles of the South Pacific to a place where the kunai grass grows as tall as a man and cuts like a katana, to an island whose name few knew, but soon all would remember, where marines became legends and the Japanese knew only as Starvation Island. Let's go back to Guadalcanal.
Late summer 1942 must have been a really confounding time period for the Japanese high command. The Japanese had achieved such stunning victories at Pearl Harbor and Singapore and with the capture of the Philippines and Thailand, Malaya, Burma, the Dutch East Indies, Wake Island, Gilbert Island, and the list goes on, as well as they had also achieved a fairly significant tactical victory at the Battle of the Coral Seas. All combined, it should have been enough, or the Japanese had hoped it would be enough, to quickly beat the Americans, if not into submission, then at least to the, the bargaining table. Uh, that hadn't happened. The hope was that if the Japanese forces moved hard and fast enough, the British and the Americans would see sense in calling for an early peace. With the Greater East Asia co-prosperity sphere in effect, Japan would be the dominant force in the Pacific, and the Americans and British and the other allies would be unable to kind of uh, reassert themselves. Dislodging Japan would be too costly and way too self-destructive for enemies that were literally thousands of miles away from Japan's home islands. Besides, Tokyo must have thought that the Japanese Imperial Navy was by far the most effective fighting force in the world's largest body of water. So even if the faraway fools in Washington and London chose to fight, they'd have to go through the world's mightiest aircraft carriers and the largest battleships before they could get anywhere near Japan itself. In the spring and summer of 1942, when the U.S. and her allies continued to fight, Japan's hope for a quick peace died. But if the Allies wanted a fight, Japan was good for it. The offensive momentum that surprise warfare had given the Japanese at Pearl Harbor and other places like Singapore continued. The perimeter of control that Japan had continued to expand south, east, and north, gobbling up islands, atolls, and barren rocks like some kind of giant hungry fish. The Japanese military seemed unstoppable. From the outside, the emperor's soldiers and sailors seemed invincible, but the rot was there if you looked close enough. The rot in this case was the Japanese believing their own press. Propaganda is a fairly dangerous and physical tool. Too far in one direction or the other, it can do more harm than good. In the case of Imperial Japan, it seems to have been more harmful than helpful. Japanese soldiers, especially the leadership and officers, believed in their innate superiority to the, the enemy. They believed Americans to be weak, stupid, fragile, and to lack bravery or honor. The average Japanese soldier thought that the Marines were convicts and parasites, little more than raving lunatics. And the U.S. Navy, the Japanese believed, was foolish and slow. The U.S. air arm was amateurish and poorly equipped to handle the fast and agile Zero. So as we wade through this episode and cover the Battle of Guadalcanal, I want you to just keep in mind the fact that the Japanese, at this point in the war, had rarely been beaten. The 1930s and early 40s had seen them pretty much take whatever they wanted and beat whoever they faced. And so this, this kind of supreme confidence would almost become fatal. 
and vice versa, the Americans, all fresh-faced and new to war, how they would have entered the battle scared witless of these Asian warriors, modern-day samurai, how the collective chests swelled with pride when the Allied troops realized the Japanese died just like any other men, if maybe a little harder. So the questions that we want to ask here through this episode are, what happens to an army when you convince them that they are destined to win, that they must win for their emperor god, that their enemy is a weak, cowardly, stupid group of pampered softies, that fighting such weaklings is almost beneath them? Now, take that army and have it get beaten. Those softies whip them and send their peerless army reeling, send their ships loaded with fresh men and needed supplies to the bottom of the beautiful Pacific, turn their vaunted fighters and bombers into little more than flying kindling. What happens when their army realizes for the very first time that they just may not win this war after all. The Battle of the Coral Seas was one of those bastard-type battles that in the moment felt like a loss, but in the long run turned out to be a win for the U.S. Navy. Midway, on the other hand, was less ambiguous a victory. The carrier duel put an end to Japanese eastward expansion for good. It also severely curtailed overall Japanese offensive capabilities. Now, that being said, Tokyo refused to give up the momentum it had earned and committed itself to a series of fairly, uh, fairly middling offensives both in the south and southeast, as well as in the northern parts of their newly acquired empire. Specifically, one attack on the city of Port Moresby was hoped to be a bit of a breakthrough for the Japanese, and then there's this epic that takes place along the Kokoda Trail. I promise I will eventually get to that and cover it for our Aussie listeners, because it is a great story. It's a fantastic epic that takes place, and nobody knows about it outside of Australia, so I definitely want to cover that. And uh, we've got a lot of listeners down in Australia and New Zealand, and, and I want to pay homage to them and, and really cover that at some point. So we'll get to that. But back to, the, uh, back to the episode. So with the major Japanese moves kind of fizzling out and dying after Pearl Harbor, the Allies had a little bit of space to breathe, collect themselves, and figure out what the hell they were going to do. The, the goal or the target that they were looking at was, again, this massive newly acquired Japanese empire. And the Japanese defensive perimeter ran from the Aleutian Islands in the north off the coast of Alaska, and then it went down thousands of miles across the empty Pacific Ocean, to encompass the Marshall, Gilbert, and Solomon Island chains. And then from there, it went west through New Guinea, around Java and Sumatra, and up to the Malaya Peninsula, and ended on the Burma-China line. That is millions of square miles 
under the sway of the rising sun. But, as the saying goes, you have to start somewhere, and where to start was the issue facing Allied command. A drive north from Australia to capture Rabul, which was the Japanese, kind of their main headquarters city in the, uh, in the southern section of the, camp, or of the theater, was, uh, was the plan of famous, if difficult, General MacArthur. He, of course, wanted total authority and to have power over the Navy's resources. But because Rabul was heavily defended, Admiral King, who was in charge of the Navy and a member of the Joint Chiefs, believed another path had to be found. The other option was his brainchild and would give his naval commanders autonomy and give the Navy the major role in the theater. He wanted to take strategic baby steps and jump kind of like a giant strategic um, fire-and-move exercise. The idea was that eventually Marines would be on the beaches of Japan, but without having to reconquer every grain of sand the Japanese had taken. Admiral King sought to kick off his plan with a test drive by invading the eastern Solomon Islands. The Japanese were weaker in the region, and the Americans were green, so it seemed like a soft spot to start off and kind of blood, bloody your men and, and get them into campaign shape and see, see what kind of fleshed out. Now, oddly enough, Guadalcanal was so unimportant that, that it was not even an intended landing target in the first invasion plans for the Solomons. In fact, nobody, uh, you know, most of the maps that they had were, were ineffectual. There was no real information on the island when they were making their plans. It was completely, uh, it, it was, it was a, a non-entity to most people around the globe, but also in the U.S. Navy. General MacArthur, the hero of the Philippines, was not a fan of this and fought it tooth and nail. He wanted the United, United States Army to take front and center and really be the, the main drive behind the victory in the Pacific. Of course, part of the problem here is that it was agreed upon by the Allies that the European theater would take precedence over the Pacific theater. So where most of the army equipment and men are going to Europe, MacArthur's finding himself kind of not stymied and not uh, left out in the cold, but he's not getting the the equipment dumps that they are getting over in Europe. There was also a jurisdictional-type issue as MacArthur's sphere of control included the Solomon Islands. The operation, though, was a Navy one, which put it under Admiral Nimitz. General George Marshall, with his unparalleled problem-solving ability, figured the issue out, and he did it just in time. The debate really no longer mattered. A group of Coast Watchers, which the Coast Watchers turn out to be this wonderfully brave and ingenious group of, of locals who were like plantation owners or tradesmen or merchants, who, instead of fleeing when the Japanese came, had decided to stick around. And they were kind of coordinated by this man named Martin Clemens, who was so brilliant and fearless, and he basically created this string of, of, of human beacons 
all along the Solomon Islands and all along the Guadalcanal coast. And these coast watchers were really great at, at alerting the U.S. that an air attack was coming or that there was uh, enemy movement or, or arms coming in. And so the coast watchers turn out to be extremely important. But at this point in the story, they're only important because they alert the U.S. Navy and the U.S. Army that there's an airfield being built and the airfield was on an island in the Solomons, and that island was called Guadalcanal. With Guadalcanal being positioned between Australia and Hawaii, an airfield there would make supply to Australia and MacArthur impossible. Acting as a sort of unsinkable aircraft carrier, a Japanese-held Guadalcanal would be able to monitor all surface traffic between the Allied positions and make MacArthur's life miserable. MacArthur would be on his own, and any attempt to take the island after the airfield was complete would be extremely, extremely costly. The building of a Japanese airfield on Guadalcanal had to be stopped no matter what the cost or the lack of preparation. The speed of events took over at this point, and in late June 1942, Vice Admiral Gormley, the commander of the South Pacific area, got things rolling. Gormley passed along a top-secret note to Major General A.A. Vandergrift. Vandergrift was a Marine's Marine. Born to war, he was the grandson of a Confederate officer, and according to Vandergriff, when his grandfather saw him in his dress blue uniform for the first time, the old rebel had some choice words for him. Vandergrift cut his teeth in World War I and in the Banana Wars, and in the weeks and months to come, Vandergrift would prove himself to be one of the greatest Marine leaders of all time. He would actually win the Medal of Honor for his steady, determined generalship, and although men like Edson, Halsey, and Puller get all the press, I found myself really, really zoned in on Vandergrift because he seems like such, a, such an amazingly calm and, and poised presence. Like Ike and General Marshall, the ability to stay calm and solve problems is really, really underrated and can be just as useful as being fierce and brave. The note that Vandergrift had received from Gormley ordered his 1st Marine Division to invade the island of Tulagi and the island of Guadalcanal in the Solomons on August 1st. Vandergrift had been under the impression that his men would be training in New Zealand throughout 1942 and that they would not see action until 1943. With the timetable jumped up a bit, the Marines would be going into battle cold. Vandergrift himself had never even met his men and had little to no info on the islands. The remoteness and seeming unimportance of Guadalcanal and the surrounding islands meant that there was very little in the way of intel. Scrounging up some natives and merchants, the Allies were able to figure that the two islands had somewhere between 8,400 and 3,100 Japanese defenders. So, with troops that he didn't know, who themselves had little training, Vandergrift was set to invade islands he had no information on against unknown enemy numbers. As Bill Hopkins, the author of The Pacific War, which is one of our main sources, as Bill Hopkins says of Vandergrift, quote, 
he must have thought that this was one hell of a way to wage a war, end quote. Guadalcanal is a relatively standard South Pacific island. Volcanic in origin, the center spine of the island is the Cavo mountain range, and these can reach over 7,000 feet in height. From the densely forested inland area tumbled several short, fast-moving rivers like the Matanacau, Lunga, and Tenaru. On the beaches of the island, there are some beautiful stretches of sand and palms with coconuts everywhere. And just off the beaches, there are some tricky reefs and sandbars that would actually come into play and uh, kind of act like nasty little barriers for the landing vessels on D-Day. Outside of saltwater crocodiles, the deadliest thing on the island was malaria-carrying mosquitoes, and there was a hell of a lot of them there, and these guys were, were way more dangerous than the crocodiles. Black clouds of the buzzing little bloodsuckers would swarm and drift continuously all over the island. And with constant rain and perpetual dampness on the jungle floor, mosquitoes had no trouble finding breeding grounds. And what would actually happen is malaria would be kind of a, a badge of honor for a lot of soldiers. You know, they, it would be seen as, as you've really been, been in it if you've had your bout with malaria. And there was a drug called, uh, I think it was atrabine that was good at preventing malaria if you were consistent with taking it or, in fact, if you took it at all. And at one point there was a rumor that went right through the, the Marines on the island. Essentially the rumor said that if you use the atrabine or the drug that they were handing out, you would become either impotent or you wouldn't be able, you'd become sterilized. So a lot of these soldiers were pretending to take the pill or refusing outright, uh, and so they actually ended up getting malaria because they were afraid of the, the preventative drug being uh, having nasty little side effects. Anyhow, the, uh, the sun really never reached the floor of the jungle. So in, in the entire island, in many, many different uh, accounts of Guadalcanal that I read, the soldiers refer to the, the constant odor and the stench of decay that just pervaded the whole island. And it would be interesting. I'd love to, you know, I'd love to eventually at some point get out there and, and, and smell it for myself because really they, they, they mention it time and again by uh, as many letters or books that I've read so far, uh, they all seem to mention it. When the Marines were able to get out of the dark and dangerous jungle, the uplands and ridges of the island had their own alien attributes. Uh, kunai grass that looked like anything you might see back in the Midwest, but moving through the razor-sharp grass could cover you in cuts and slices that would essentially be like, like hundreds of little paper cuts. And beyond the deadly and harmful, there was just the merely annoying parts of the island. The island had a considerable parrot population that was forever making noise that could drive a man up a tree. Of course, the Marines eventually learned that to listen to the birds and the jungle noises, if they stopped chattering and stopped their incessant noise-making, the Marines realized that usually that meant that the Japanese or an enemy attack was coming. Now, 
because of the constant rain every day, even if, for only a short time, nothing ever stayed dry on Guadalcanal. Chafing, rashes, mildew, and blisters were Marines' constant companions. In fact, Vandergrift at one point goes and orders, uh, he orders, I think, like 10,000 condoms. And the condoms weren't for, you know, it's not for use as they should be used, but the condoms were just to keep guns and personal, uh, personal effects dry. So men would wrap them around the barrels of their guns, or they'd stuff, you know, pictures and their own personal, you know, equipment into the condoms to keep them dry. So, in early August 1942, it was to this studying contradictions, this beautifully disgusting, wonderful, hellish place that the 1st U.S. Marine Division sailed for. Operation Watchtower, as the invasion was called, had 75 ships and transports come together near Fiji and then head for Guadalcanal and Tulagi on July 31st. In overall command was Vice Admiral Frank Fletcher, a solid, if unremarkable, Navy man, and commanding the amphibious portion of the expedition was Rear Admiral Richmond Turner. And Vandergrift, as we've already said, had control of the men once they were on shore. While in Fiji, the landing, uh, the landings were planned amongst the men who were in control, and they were staged once. While planning the upcoming attack, a significant flaw in the whole plan was uncovered. Vandergrift believed that once his men secured the airstrip and dug in, the Navy would keep the surrounding waters clear. And on this, he was wrong. About halfway between Guadalcanal and the Florida Islands, which were just, or are just north of Guadalcanal, there is a couple of tiny islands. The channel between these islands is called Sealark Channel, and Vandergriff thought that this would be his supply route, that the U.S. Navy would send ships and men and equipment through Sealark Channel pretty regularly, and that he wouldn't have to worry about being resupplied. He rightly believed that with the Japanese in control of the western part of Guadalcanal, they would be able to use the slot, which is uh, the, the slot is the name for the long, straight shipping lane that ran through the Solomon Island chain right up to the main base that the Japanese were using at Rabul and, and uh, at Bo- Bougainville. So the Japanese had this perfect resupply line, and the Americans thought that they had a similar one on the eastern and central part of Guadalcanal. What Vandergriff learned in Fiji was that once landed, the Marines would be on their own. Fletcher had been given an impossible order. He was not to lose any of the precious carriers he had, but he was also to keep them in play. With a contradictory order hanging over his head and a lack of sea or air control, Fletcher decided to pull his ships out as soon as the landings were done. It seems somewhat cowardly at first, but a strategic zoom out makes it clear that this was the right call. With so few carriers active and afloat, to risk them for anything short of a massive victory would be foolhardy. With the plan set, if not precisely agreed upon, on August 7, 1942, a light bombardment preceded the landings themselves. Tulagi and Gavutu are close to the southern shore of Florida Island, 
around 20 miles north of Guadalcanal, and not far, but not exactly close. Tulagi is an island about two miles from Florida Island's coast, and in between are the even smaller islands of Gavutu and Tanambogo. All these three islands were connected to the main island of Florida Island by a series of causeways. Nearly 1,000 Japanese soldiers garrisoned all three tiny islands. Oddly, these small islands would see the majority of the fighting on D-Day. Lieutenant Colonel Merritt Mike Edson and his 1st Marine Raider Battalion landed at 8 a.m. on Tulagi and moved across the island. These guys were hand-picked crack troops. Edson had been training them for months to be fast-moving, long-distance covering units. They were all ace shots and some of the best hand-to-hand fighters in the world. They were trained back at Quantico in Virginia by a 64-year-old general that was supposedly the best fighter in the army. At 64 years old, to show the men his skill, he had a group of 13 armed soldiers surround him, and he apparently proceeded to disarm and subdue all of them. The raider battalion moved along the shore and ran into stiff resistance while it was clearing the island. The 1st Parachute Battalion, which had also landed with the raider group, but they had landed at the smaller Gavutu and Tanambogo, had been beaten up and taken severe losses. By the 8th of August, all the islands had been subdued at some cost. The first ground run-in with the Japanese foreshadowed the horrors of the coming years. 144 Marines had died and 194 had been wounded in the capture of tiny, meaningless specks. On Tulagi, of a garrison of 243, 200 Japanese were dead, 40 had escaped to Florida Island to fight another day, and only three had surrendered. On Gavutu and Tanambogo, the entire 500-man garrison had been killed. Throughout the war, not one entire Japanese unit surrendered in mass, no matter how dire the situation. This strength, or flaw, was first witnessed in the Guadalcanal campaign. It seemed to the Allies that if they were going to win this war, they would need to kill every single Japanese soldier that they faced, not by choice, but apparently by necessity. Guadalcanal itself, soon to be the home of such slaughter, ironically, the first days went extremely smooth. And I actually got a really, really awesome map from a company called Battle Archives. And if you get the opportunity, check them out, battlearchives.com. They have a a wide variety of maps and and images from various U.S.-related battles, but the one that I have is this absolutely fantastic. It's a great office type piece. It's something that I'm going to have mounted or, you know, I'm going to, I'm going to have it framed and and hang it somewhere nice because it's, it's a really beautiful, well-detailed scan of an actual original map from the battle that shows the plan for the landing and then what the objectives for the various units that were being landed, what their inland objectives were. Uh, it's, it's a beautiful little piece of history that works 
in, in a number of different ways. It would be a great gift for somebody for like Father's Day or Christmas, but it's also a great gift for yourself. And, you know, Battle Archives, it's fairly cheap. I mean, the, the material's worth it, uh, and the, the quality is, is really there. So to my mind, 75 85 bucks is pretty cheap for something that's going to be with you for, for a very long time. I mean, these are such high quality that I, I would be willing to say that you'd be able to pass this kind of an item down. Um, so again, that's Battle Archives. Check them out. I got a great map of the Guadalcanal landings. And like I was saying, the Guadalcanal landings went extremely smooth the first couple of days. Uh, landing to the east of the Tenerou River, the Marines moved cautiously inland and then westwards towards uh, Lunga Point and the airfield that the Japanese were building. After a casualty-free first day, August 8th proved just as successful. Two prisoners had been taken, and these guys confirmed that the defenders' numbers were to be really no more than 700 fighting men. The rest were kind of like conscripted con construction workers from Korea. This minuscule force posed no real threat to the Marines, so they pushed forward and captured their objectives, and once they took the airfield, they renamed it Henderson Field in honor of a pilot who had died in the Battle of Midway. After securing the field, the Marines found the enemy had left in such a rush that they had left an abundance of food, supplies, and fully functioning construction equipment and cement. The rice that the Japanese left behind, in some cases, was found to be still warm in bowls. Uh, it's almost like the Japanese were caught totally unawares. And the, the rice would actually prove to be a really, really huge help and play a massive role in the next few weeks. As the marine supply became thinner and thinner, they really relied on that rice to, to fill up marine bellies. Back on the beaches, Admiral Fletcher was getting antsy. His carrier force had stayed in tight to protect the landings, but there had been uh, there had been a few losses. Japanese aircraft out of Rabul had been pretty continuously peppering the amphibious force, damaging a number of transports and destroyers. The carrier-based planes Fletcher had were doing a number on the Japanese, but by the 8th, he had lost 21 of his 99 planes. The cost of staying in close was too much, and when fuel began to get low, which there's some reports that this wasn't the case, that Fletcher inflated how low his fuel was so that he could get, a, uh, get the result that he was looking for, Fletcher requested permission to move away. Gormley agreed, and so on the evening of the 8th, Fletcher withdrew his carrier force. Turner, in charge of the transports, was also planning to get out of Dodge. He promised Vandergrift to unload through the night so that Vandergrift and his men would have as much gear and, and equipment and food as possible, but he had to get his transport transports off before they became exposed. Again, Fletcher was in a tight spot, and without the protection of the carrier force, Turner's slow squat ships would have been target practice for Japanese pilots. But as tough as Fletcher and Turner's positions were, it was nowhere near as tight as Vandergrift's. As he took stock of the situation on the 8th, Vandergrift again must have thought, this is a hell of a way to fight a war. He was soon going to find himself in control of 18,500 men split up 
with 7,500 between Tulagi and the other small islands off of Florida Island, and 11,000 on the main island of Guadalcanal. His supplies and ammo, as it stood, would run out in a little over 10 days. And it's not that the food and ammo didn't exist. The really annoying part, or the really uh, just horrible part, was that the food and ammo existed, it just never got unloaded. Turner was in such a rush to get away that most of that food and ammo went back to the main ships with it. Worse yet, the waters around the island were now almost entirely in the enemy's control. That meant he would get no supplies, he would be unable to combine his two forces, and even if he wanted to or needed to, there would be no withdrawal. On top of all that, Vandergriff knew the enemy was coming for Henderson Field with everything they could muster. Bad as things seemed, Vandergriff could hardly have imagined things could get worse. That night, August 8th, off a small island in the slot called Savo, they did. Between the western edges of Guadalcanal and Florida Island, there's a small speck of land. This speck is called Savo Island, and it splits the approach for ships coming down the slot. Because of its obvious potential for enemy activity, the area was being heavily patrolled that night, August 8th, by the vessels of Rear Admiral Sir Victor Crutchley, VC, of Australia. Crutchley was acting as Turner's second-in-command, and his group of screening ships included three Australian cruisers. With 15 destroyers, two light, and six heavy cruisers, Crutchley's job was to protect Turner's landing and supply ships. On the night of August 8th, the group split into smaller squads, each assigned an area to guard. A swift and stealthy fleet of five heavy cruisers, two light cruisers, and one destroyer, all under Admiral Gunichi Mikawa, moved down the slot unseen. There had been reports throughout the day of enemy ships approaching, but for some reason, these were not relayed or taken seriously. Mikawa wanted to sweep in and take his understrength unit, slam some torpedoes and salvos into whatever they came across, and then skip town. He did quite a bit more than that. As August 9th dawned, the Allied ships were in shambles. The cruisers Quincy, Vincennes, and Astoria, as well as the Australian cruiser Canberra, were settling to the ocean floor. These were the first ships to sink in what soon would be known as Iron Bottom Sound, for the sheer mass of vessels lying dead beneath the surface. Another cruiser, the Chicago, and a couple of destroyers were severely damaged. What suffered most, though, at Savo Island was the U.S. Navy's pride. There were so many mistakes made that an inquest was called for after the battle. From failure to report the enemy to a general lack of preparedness, from fire safety flaws to a lack of bravery, in the case of the Chicago, whose Captain Bodie uh, shot himself after the hearing uh, results were made public, the inquest uncovered a ton of mistakes. Admiral Turner went on to claim that the most significant issue he believed was the false sense of certainty the U.S. Navy operated with 
in the pre-war era. It was thought that no Japanese ships would be able to inflict considerable loss no matter the odds. At Savo Island, the Japanese beat the hell out of the Allies, killing over a thousand men. The Japanese ships were hit maybe twice in some reports, and a total loss of only 129 men by comparison. It was a wildly lopsided victory for the Japanese, and curiously, the Americans gained more from the Savo Island defeat than the Japanese gained from the victory. Immediately after Savo, Admiral King, as the top dog in the Navy, began a massive overhaul of the entire U.S. Navy. Night fighting protocol, fire safety design, ship-to-ship communications, all of these would be addressed and adjusted. Defeat is always the best teacher, and the Allies lived by this motto, using the first whippings in the war as a guide for the future. Unfortunately for Vandergrift, none of this helped him in the immediate. With the water around the island in enemy hands and little to no chance of an evacuation, Vandergrift went on the defensive. He set up a perimeter that encompassed the airfield and pushed out towards the island's center, kind of like a wide-shaped U. Turner had only been able to uh, drop a real, really a fraction of the supplies that were necessary to hold the island before he bailed. And until the airfield was built and done, the sky above belonged to the Japanese. Soon they would be marching through the jungle to retake their airfield, working on two meals a day, mostly consisting of the mealy, wormy, liberated Japanese rice the Marines had to dig in all along the line. Lieutenant General Hiyaku Taki, responsible for retaking the island of Guadalcanal for the Emperor, began to pull his widely spread forces together. With an offensive in New Guinea and garrison work all over the Pacific, available units were slim. Hyakutaki was pulling from the armies in New Guinea, Palau, and the Philippines. One unit that did not need to come from an active front was the 28th Ichiki Infantry Regiment, under Colonel Kiono Ichiki. The 28th was in transit to Guam and so could be easily rerouted, and it would also arrive first, well before the other units. Without waiting for the rest of his 2,000 men coming behind him, Echiki landed and began to prepare the assault on the Marines. And this was his first mistake. The 18th and 20th of August saw two landings on Guadalcanal, each in their way momentous. On the 18th, the first element of Ichiki's force, made up of a little over 900 men, landed at Taivu, east of Lunga Point. A smaller group of 500 men landed west of Lunga at Kokumbona, and the rest of Ichiki's men, all 2,000, were trailing behind in their slower transports. After landing, the men of Achiki's force moved west, headed for the all-important airfield. Working with faulty intelligence, the Japanese believed that the U.S. ground forces were small enough that Achiki's 3,000 would be enough to dislodge the invaders. 
The colonel took this misguided belief one step further and insisted that his first echelon would be enough by itself to win the airfield and the day. After midnight on August 21st, the main Japanese body reached the eastern bank of Alligator Creek. The Marines on the perimeter knew something was going on in the jungle because of the general ruckus made by the Japanese. At 1.30 a.m., the Imperial Infantry let loose with machine guns and small mortars. 100 Japanese soldiers flung themselves across the river and the sandbar in it at the Marine line. Although the Marine machine guns and 37mm cannon did an excellent job of mowing down attackers, still some men broke through. A counterattack killed any of the successful Japanese attackers, but the Marines had now seen firsthand what they were dealing with. The first wave was over, but the night was young. At 2.30, another wave went over the sandbar, this time around 200 Japanese infantry. Almost all were killed. Refusing to admit defeat, Ichiki sent another wave at 5 o'clock, this time by wading through the surf to the flank on the Marines, uh, on the Marines ocean side. Again, the attackers were slaughtered. By daybreak, the Japanese were still on the eastern bank, but seemed to lack the energy to mount another wave attack, and a lot of the smaller attacks seemed very, very discombobulated. With over half the unit dead or wounded, it's not surprising that they became frozen. The Marines did not suffer from any kind of immobility, though. They counterattacked and pinched the Japanese into ever smaller space. Eventually, the remnants of Achiki's force was trapped in a coconut grove and wiped out by air attacks and tanks. Five M3 Stuart tanks mopped up, and according to Vandergrift, quote, the rear of the tanks looked like meat grinders, end quote. Ichiki was either killed in action or upon realizing what he had done, which was pointlessly wasting the lives of his men in frontal assaults across obstacles on dug-in positions, Achiki committed seppuku after burning his regimental colors. Of the 900-plus Japanese soldiers in the fight, well over 750 were killed. But the wounded were not out of commission. As Marine corpsmen and others attempted to sift through the dead and injured to help, Japanese wounded blew themselves up with concealed grenades or they would shoot the very men that were trying to help them. Only 15 injured were taken captive, and these only because they were unconscious at the time of capture. It's at the Battle of Alligator Creek that shooting and bayoneting wounded or dead Japanese became practice on Guadalcanal. A stunned and seemingly haunted Vandergrift wrote, quote, I've never heard of or read of this kind of fighting. These people refuse to surrender. The wounded wait until men come up to examine them and blow themselves and the other fellow to pieces with a hand grenade, end quote. By the global standards of World War II, this, quote, Battle of the Teneru, end quote, was a trifling affair, but its ramifications were wholly out of proportion with the modest size of the forces engaged. The racial explanation also overlooks the patently more critical fact that the savagery in the Pacific stemmed fundamentally from a cultural clash. 
That was written by Richard B. Frank back in August 2007, and he's absolutely right. The ramifications he is referring to are more psychological than anything else. His point is entirely correct. It's in this engagement on Alligator Creek that the Marines realized that they could beat the Imperial Japanese, and at the same time, the Japanese realized that they could not just steamroll the Allies like they had all the other Asian nations they had faced. Unlike the U.S. Navy after the defeat at Savo Island, the Japanese learned little from the defeat at Alligator Creek. The two most important things that they pulled away from it were that there were a, a large amount more Marines on Guadalcanal than they had originally thought. This forced them to send more men into the unplanned for island wrestling match, and it raised the stakes once again, ratcheting up the importance of Guadalcanal. The other thing that the Japanese learned at the Battle of Alligator Creek was that like the Death Star, Henderson Field was fully operational. On August 20th, the other momentous landing occurred, and that came in the form of two squadrons of aircraft landed at Henderson Field. 19 Grumman F-4F Wildcats and 12 Douglas SBD Dauntlesses were now part of Vandergriff's arsenal. The Wildcats were the only capable fighters available in the Pacific at the breakout of war. Though slower and less maneuverable than the Speedy Zero, Wildcats combined durability with tactics to become impressively effective. The SBD, nicknamed the Slow But Deadly, Dauntlesses gained fame as the weapon of Japanese destruction at Midway. With a vast range of maneuverability and able to both take and deliver a punch, the Dauntless was a Marine and Navy workhorse. Under Brigadier General Roy Geiger, this small but scrappy force was soon known as the Cactus Air Force, and that name comes from the island of Guadalcanal's codename, which was Cactus. The Cactus Air Force went into almost immediate action fending off Japanese daytime bombing runs. Along with the planes came the equally important Seabees. Under Commander Joe Blunden, a World War I veteran, 1,100 somewhat armed and trained construction workers were assigned the job of finishing and maintaining the all-important airstrip. Although they had little equipment of their own, the Japanese had left a whole bunch of equipment. By bivouacking near the airstrip, the Seabees put themselves in harm's way, but cut down the time it took to repair craters created by the shelling from ships and from bombings by Japanese bombers. Crater filling became an almost permanent job, and the, the Seabees would go on to be excellent at it. Down the line, when we talk in the next episode about the, the bombings of Henderson Field, and the there's a really uh, harrowing couple of days, I'll go into the in-depth of the Seabees' abilities a little bit more. The combination of Seabees and Cactus Air Force proved impressive, knocking zeros from the sky and sending wildcats into the fight around the clock. Soon, the air above Guadalcanal was nominally under U.S. control. The Japanese were somehow still able to get reinforcements onto the island, though, and the way they did it was risky at best.
Even without knowing the outcome of the Battle of Alligator Creek, the brilliant Admiral Yamamoto, the man directing Japan's forces all over the Pacific Theater, was planning an, a uh, reinforcing operation for Guadalcanal. His only hope at this point was to smash any carrier forces in the waters around the island and then wipe Henderson Field from the map. Now, to do this, Yamamoto pulled together a strong contingent of ships. Moving out from their base at Truck on the 23rd, three transports loaded with almost 2,000 men headed for Guadalcanal. The transports were guarded by 13 warships under Rear Admiral Tanaka. Three carriers under Admiral Nagumu, along with 30 other ships, headed south to cover the landings and give support. The light carrier Ryojo was sent far ahead of the fleet as obvious bait for the Cactus Air Force pilots. The plan was that Ryuju was, uh, would draw the CAF up into a fight, and then the following two Japanese carrier planes would join in and overpower the Americans. Seeing the potential for a game-changing uh, fight here, Admiral Fletcher started to move his carrier force back into the line of fire. On the 24th, the two carrier groups fought. The Japanese carrier Shikuku and Zaikuku, along with the light Ryuju, had 177 aircraft. The U.S. Navy's Enterprise in Saratoga could only send up 176. In the ensuing fight, the Ryuju was nailed by a number of 1,000-pound bombs and it sank. The Enterprise was beaten up badly enough to need two months of repairs. Both sides lost aircraft, but the Japanese lost far more, and even this early on in the war, it was clear they could not replace these losses. Without a decisive end, the two carrier formations sailed away from each other and out of the fighting zone for safer waters. On the 25th, Tanaka's transport force came under heavy fire. The CAF came in hot, sinking one transport and forcing the fleet to divert course for safety. The Marine aircraft had also severely damaged a destroyer and knocked around several other ships, including Tanaka's flag, the Jinsu. The Japanese reinforcement plan was set back for a later date, and daytime operations were suspended. The Battle of the Eastern Solomons, as this series of engagements is now known, was precedent-setting. From here on, the Marines owned the daytime airspace and held a tentative stalemate in the surrounding waters. The Japanese truly started watering weeds, as each attempt to get, a, get men on the island became more and more foolhardy. Again, we see kind of a, a desperation in the strategy of the Imperial High Command, or at least a, a blind faith approach. In an attempt to adjust their strategy, the Japanese shifted gears. Instead of slow transports moving in the daytime under heavy guard, General Kawaguchi would send his infantry on quick destroyers. The ships would move by night and be regularly able to make single night round trip through the slot. With some nearby islands under Japanese control, if any of these ships needed to take cover along the way, they could. This new approach was not perfect. Destroyers were much less efficient troop ships, but the exposure to deadly air attack was removed. Known as the, quote, Tokyo Express to the U.S., 
or the, quote, rat transportation to the Japanese, these runs got men to the island, but not much else. Men, some food and ammo was about all the destroyers could handle. No heavy guns, no vehicles, or heavy equipment. Interestingly, the Tokyo Express was never really challenged by Allied surface ships. The nighttime runs were well known and could have easily been attacked, but it seems that maybe the sting from Savo was still fresh. Perhaps night action this soon seemed too dangerous? Regardless, by September 4th, 5,000 Japanese troops had landed on Guadalcanal. General Kawaguchi himself had landed on August 31st and had taken command of all the forces on the island. By early September, the ebb and flow of attrition began to tell in the air in Guadalcanal. Almost daily bombing attacks from the Japanese airbase at Rabaul had strained the CAF and the Seabees, but the numbers were on their side. A roughly 3 to 4 loss to kill ratio was established early and was rapidly improving. On top of tactics and growing confidence, Allied pilots were comfortable in the knowledge that if shot down, they stood a good chance of surviving. Over half of the downed U.S. airmen were recovered with the help of coast watchers and locals. Almost all Japanese pilots shot down went unrecovered. In some cases, out of a twisted sense of honor, Japanese pilots actually refused to open their parachutes, preferring death to shame. The whole idea of bombing runs from Rabul was ridiculous. Eight-hour round trips meant that the actual time over the target was too short to really be effective, and that if these, ship, uh, if these planes had to maneuver at all, it was costing precious fuel. So a lot of the times you would end up uh, with, with Japanese ships actually falling out of the sky or having to be crash-landed on the return journey simply because they ran out of fuel. With the Coast Watchers giving precise advance notice of oncoming attacks to the CAF, Japanese bombers became easy targets. Losses for the Japanese air arm were mounting. Trained carrier and land-based pilots for Japan were almost irreplaceable, whereas the U.S. could churn them out. The attrition was slowly turning the tide, with the Allies having daytime control of the sky and sea and the Japanese owning the night, the campaign took its main form. For the next few months, the two sides would operate by sunlight or moonlight, respectively. The other tide-turning event that occurred in early September was the relocation of the Marine Raider and Paratrooper Battalions. Moving the forces from Gavutu and Tulagi to the main island of Guadalcanal, Vandergrift hoped to give them a rest. The paratroop battalion especially had suffered in August and was combined with the raiders under Merritt Edson's command. This innocuous shifting of units brought a good portion of fighting marines into Henderson Field's defensive perimeter and added to Vandergrift's already existing man pool. What Vandergrift could not have known was that at that time he had just put Edson and his men in the enemy's path of approach. He had also just saved the entire operation on Guadalcanal. Vandergrift's defensive line around Henderson Field was strong, 
but Japanese General Kawaguchi believed it could be broken. The Imperial Major General recognized the airbase as the key to the whole battle and set about planning to, quote, rout and annihilate, end quote, the Marines defending it. Hoping to swarm the Allied troops with successive wave attacks, Kawaguchi split his force of 6,200 into three groups. One section under Officer Oka would strike the western defenses, the leftovers of Achiki's unit would hit in the east, and then for the kill shot, Kawaguchi's main thrust would hit the center of the U.S. line with 3,000-plus men. With only 849 men between his raider and parachute battalions, Colonel Edson's position would be overwhelmed and Henderson Field destroyed. By September 7th, most of Kawaguchi's men were in place. Working with information supplied by Martin Clemens' Coast Watchers, Colonel Edson planned a raid. Hearing that a large body of Japanese soldiers was nearby at Taivu in the village of Tasimboko, Edson struck out. His men captured the town and sent the Japanese guards into a full retreat into the jungle. What Edson's raid found at the camp was a mass of food, ammo, and equipment. This made it clear that a large force of Imperial infantry was on the island planning an attack. Everything was destroyed or taken, and Edson returned his men to the line more convinced than ever an attack was coming. The question was no longer if, but where and when the attack would be. To the first question, Edson had an answer. He was pretty sure that the main attack would come from the south, so he had his men dig foxholes along that section of the ridge. Even more, he thought it would come up a a thousand-yard ridge that ran alongside the Lunga River. Cramped in places and relatively grassy, the access point was good for moving troops quickly. The elevation also provided a straight shot to the airfield, providing also whoever held it with control of the area. And best yet for the attackers, it was barely defended. Able to convince Vandergriff's ops officer, Edson was able to move his not-quite 850-man force to this ridge on September 11th. The men of the Marine, Parachute, and Raider battalions did not have to wait long to answer the second question of when the attack would come. On the moonless night of the 12th of September, Kawaguchi's first attack hit the raiders' position across the land between the Lunga River and Lunga Ridge. The fighting was desperate, and the Imperial soldiers savaged the defenders to the point where a Marine company had to fall back to the ridge line to find a stronger position. As dire as the fighting seemed at times, these assaults were probing. Kawaguchi was trying to get a sense of what he faced, and also he was seeking a weak point. On the morning of the 13th, Edson moved around the field, encouraging, cajoling, and forcing his men to be brave and fight on. I've read in in a few different places that Edson did not sleep for three days during the fighting. He really did share the plight of his men through this battle. Edson was a force of nature, a light in the dark for his men, and a model marine leader. He knew the Japanese would be back, and so he spent the day moving around the ridgeline saying, quote, They were testing, just testing, they'll be back. Today we dig, wire up tight, get some sleep. We'll all need it, end quote. 
Utterly fearless, somewhat fatalistically so, Edson moved around the battlefield upright and without a care for personal safety. He told his wife that he genuinely believed his fate to be in the hands of God, and so he could not be concerned with when he would die. A gruff, stoic soldier, Edson was not without a heart. When he heard his friend and runner had been killed running a dispatch, he broke down and wept openly. Over and over, his men reported seeing shots fly inches from Edson and strike nearby, and Edson do nothing about it. Over and over, they missed. Edson's marines believed it was his leadership and belief in them that got them through the battle. His bravery and skill in the contest would win him the Medal of Honor. The next night, the Japanese attacked again, this time with all 3,000 men in the center, and with what little artillery they were able to muster. Kawaguchi's forces advanced just after nightfall and pressed the attack all night. The two flanking forces, Oka and Kuma, formerly Ichiki, also struck that night. Kawaguchi's men on Edson's right flank, just west of the ridge, broke through and looked ready to reach the airfield. The breakthrough uh, Japanese units were finally stopped dead by a few well-placed marines set to guarding the northern portion of the ridgeline and airbase. Where Kawaguchi's left flank found itself stopped, his center was having great success. Rushing up the southern portion of the Lunga Ridge, these men pushed the marines off their spot. Edson's men were forced back to Hill 123 at the ridge's center point. It was here that the do-or-die stakes were highest. All through the night, the dug-in and desperate marines beat back waves of infantry assaults. Even with the devastating effect of machine guns on frontal charges, the Japanese still found themselves breaking into the defensive line. Horrific little grappling matches would be witnessed all over the hill as hand-to-hand combat usually signaled the end of an attack. Once mopped up, the Marine defensive line settled back in for the next wave. Some Japanese units did break through the Allied line and made it to the airfield. One story I read talked about a pilot running to his plane in the morning to find a Marine cleaning his BAR in the cockpit. When he asked what was going on, the Marine pointed to a shot-up Japanese body, and he calmly told the pilot he waited until he could shoot the man clean, and that way he wouldn't hit the plane. The wise placement of these heavily armed Marine guards made sure to take care of these victims of their own success. With the continual grinding down of his force, Kawaguchi called for a halt on the afternoon of September 14th. His force was decimated. Of 3,000 men, he'd lost almost 1,000 left on the field, and few of the wounded men, which was probably quite a few, would make it on the retreat. His flanking attacks produced nothing, and in the center there was only death. Kawaguchi called off the offensive and moved his forces back to the Matanikau Valley. Five days of hard marching from Lunga, or what was now being called Edson's Ridge, the Japanese would find somewhat safety. The Marines of the Parachute and Raider Battalions had held the line, but just barely. The Raiders lost 135 men, and the Parachute Battalion lost 128. The cost on both sides led to Marines remembering the battle as the Battle of Bloody Ridge. 
The key to the victory at Edson's Ridge, beyond what Edson and his men had contributed, was provided by the Japanese themselves. The Imperial High Command still believed the U.S. number to be far smaller than they were. The belief was that 6,200 Japanese soldiers were facing lesser or similar numbers. In actuality, they faced almost twice that amount. The mistake would not be made again. When Hyakutake in Rabul finally learned of the failure of Kawaguchi's strike, he immediately passed it along to Tokyo. An emergency council of war was called, and the result was that the Japanese now believed, quote, Guadalcanal might develop into the decisive battle of the war, end quote. To free up as many men and as much material as possible, Hyakutake had to pause the offensive against Port Moresby in New Guinea, even though imperial forces were a scant 30 miles from the desired city. Seeing the way the wind was blowing, U.S. forces on the island were resupplied and reinforced on September 18th. The Allied convoy brought over 4,000 men, precious aviation fuel and food, and much-needed ammo, and even a few vehicles. With the new gear and men, Vandergrift was able to close the Lunga perimeter for the first time. Now, any attack would be facing one continuous defensive line. The battle for the island had matured. Guadalcanal had finally reached critical mass in the eyes of both the Japanese and the U.S., These much-needed reinforcements had to be shipped to Guadalcanal. This required a U.S. Navy force to cover the transports, exposing the ships to enemy submarines once they got into Iron Bottom Sound. Once the Japanese subs were in among the escorting ships, all it took was 15 minutes. In that short period, the carrier Wasp, the battleship North Carolina, and the destroyer O'Brien were all torpedoed. The Wasp was hit so bad that she had to be scuttled, leaving only the USS Hornet as the sole active U.S. carrier in the South Pacific. The situation was getting more dire by the day. In the air, the two sides had a brief pause as they refitted their respective air units. Japanese bombing runs ceased for a time in the middle of the month. Once the Japanese had received 85 new fighters and bombers in Rabul, though, the attacks began again. By late September, the Japanese had, in Rabul, a uh, fleet of 117 aircraft to the Allied 71 at Henderson Field. Again, though, if shot down, Japanese pilots and planes were likely down for good. So the numbers are not as great an indicator of actual power as they might seem. With the air raids beginning again on September 27th, it looked like the battle was about to enter its next phase. Nobody on either side could decipher what that would look like, and some in command for the Allies had their doubts. Gormley and MacArthur had no faith that the island could be held. They had little to base their opinion on, though, because neither had been to the island and seen the front for themselves. To fix this, General Hap Arnold set out to see for himself if the campaign could be won. 
His interview with MacArthur left him a little shaken, and it seemed that the old soldier had no doubt Guadalcanal was lost. The Navy's Admiral Nimitz also went to see what was what at the front. His interview with Gormley similarly disheartened him. He found the overall theater commander, quote, haggard with fatigue and anxiety. He occupied a small hotbox of an office in his HQ ship, end quote. Next, Nimitz headed for Guadalcanal itself. Touring the airfield and Bloody Ridge, Nimitz noted that, quote, the nearer he got to the combat zone, the more confidence he found, end quote. In a one-on-one with Vandergrift, Nimitz asked what he needed to hold. Vandergrift said with more men and fighter craft, he could hold out indefinitely. Nimitz left without promising much, but soon he got the ball rolling on sending as much as he could find to Vandergrift and his men on Guadalcanal. Meanwhile, in the aftermath of the failed assault on Bloody Ridge, the Japanese had begun rebuilding their strength on the island. Four Tokyo Express runs had brought men and ammo as well as supplies to the island, with men from the units in the Dutch East Indies being transported to Rabaul, the plan was to get over 17,000 men on to Guadalcanal. Ideally, these fresh troops would meet up with Kawaguchi's soldiers that were now west of the Matanikau. The considerable force would then once again try to break the Lunga perimeter in October. Vandergrift knew where Kawaguchi's men were, but between the main body of troops and the Marines were a large number of isolated Japanese stragglers and bands. To prevent these bands from uniting or infiltrating his lines, Vandergrift began sending out patrols into the Montanacau Valley. One of these patrols saw three Marine battalions stopped by Japanese forces. In the chaos, three companies were cut off and wholly surrounded near Point Cruz on the coast. The companies were getting cut up really bad until the USS Monson and Coast Guard landing craft showed up to lend a hand. Douglas Monroe captained one of the LC. He used his vessel to cover the retreat and evacuation of the Marines, throwing himself into harm's way. His last words after he was shot up were, were to his buddy. He said, quote, did they get off, end quote. For his selfless actions, Monroe was awarded the Medal of Honor and is to this day the only Coast Guard recipient. Two more early October raids on the Matanikau Valley had mixed results, the first one successful in pushing back Japanese forces east of the Matanikau River. The second raid in early October hit two small outposts and uh, the Japanese losses came to 35-40, but at the cost of 17 Marines and three Navy men. It was all useful in disrupting Japanese preparations for their upcoming large-scale attack on the Lunga perimeter, but if the Henderson Field, and by extension if Guadalcanal itself, was to be held, the Marines needed backup. All right, that's where we're going to leave the story for today. There's so much more to cover, but instead of rushing things and kind of getting all wonky on the story, I figure you guys won't mind if we cut this tale in two. Stay tuned for the conclusion of the Battle of Guadalcanal coming to you next week.